In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we've got a pretty broad range of topics for you that I think is going to be a make for a, uh, a really interesting episode. So we'll start off by recapping some um, thoughts on the VP debate last week. Then we'll move into a discussion of Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, um, and some of her recent hearings this week. Um, and then we'll finish up by having a discussion about a concept called stochastic terrorism and its relationship to the uh, attempted or plotted kidnapping of uh, the governor of Michigan. So And the governor of Virginia as well. And, yeah, and it hits, <laughs> it's, it's close to home. I yeah. know people that work in his office. Yeah, I don't even <laughs> like him that much, but, you know, I don't want him kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, but to start off, we will talk a little bit about uh, the COVID numbers. Yeah, as usual. So, yeah, so worldwide, uh, we've had a total of 39.1 million cases, which is up from 36.3 million last week, which is nearly an 8% increase week over week, which is the biggest single week increase we've seen in, in a while. Um, we've had 1.1 million deaths worldwide, which is up from 1.06 million last week, which is a 3.8% increase, which, of course, will likely see um, an increase in this death rate as a result, as it flows from um, the increase in cases. So in the next few weeks, we might see greater week-over-week increases in death. Currently, 8.7 million people in the world are sick with the disease, which is up from 7.9 million active cases last week. And that's a 10% increase in active cases. So far, 22% of COVID patients are still sick with the disease. 2.8% have died from it, and 75% have recovered. And now in the U.S., um, we've had a total of 8.2 million cases, which is up from 7.8 million last week which is a 5.1% increase, which is generally aligned with, with where we've been, although a number of states are seeing increases in their daily average case rate. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 223,000 people have died at this point in the U.S., which is up from 216,000 last week, or a 3.2% increase in total deaths. So yes, if you did that quick mental math, that's an additional 7,000 people died uh, from this disease since you heard from us last. Ouch. Yeah. Currently, we've got 2.7 million people currently sick with the disease, which is up from 2.6 million last week, which is a 3.8% increase. So again, back to growing uh, active case numbers. And in the U.S. at this point, 33% of all COVID cases are still active, with 2.6% of people having died and 65% of people having recovered. So Remember that 33% of all COVID cases in the U.S. that have ever existed, those people are still sick. So if anybody's trying to tell you that, like, we're on the back end of this disease or we're almost out of it. That's like, a sizable a third, chunk, considering the third. fact that we've been in this for almost a year at this point. Yeah, exactly. 
Jeez, exactly. over 30%? That's insane. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, I think that's a pretty good benchmark for figuring out kind of where we are. Yeah. Like, so anyway, things are not looking great. And in the world overall, in the U.S., we're starting to see increases in cases as people are anticipating a bit of a potential second wave. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> God, I was I was talking to uh, one of my bosses today um, about preparing for the next semester, and uh, we were discussing the possibility. Or we were basically discussing how it's possible that at least halfway through next semester, this might be over because of a vaccine. And I was starting to remember, oh yeah, there is life that exists outside of COVID. <laughs> Yeah. Like there will be life after COVID and there was life before COVID. I, I forgot. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be really strange. Yeah, it is. I feel like there's definitely going to be a lot more people still wearing masks even mm -hmm. after the, the COVID epidemic. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking was the next time I'm sick yeah. If I'm going to work, like like with just a flu or just a or a cold, if I still go to work, I'm wearing a mask. Totally. You know, and, yeah. and I think that's probably a good thing. It's yeah. probably a good thing that wearing a mask has become normalized to that specific point. Yep, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I like I worry that even after the disease is largely resolved a lot of these like habits will kind of persist and we'll still remain kind of worried about the disease. Cause yeah. you know, even if we have a vaccine, um, you know, we don't know what the long-term impacts are. And even if it's not death, even in mild cases, there's been some indication that like other physical and neurological impacts. Yeah. Um, that's I'm that that's been terrifying to me lately. Like it's unlikely for me to die from this disease, but the idea that, um, like me as a person, and the way that I live my life could be subject to some kind of long-term chronic ailment yeah. as a result of even a mild or asymptomatic case. That's really scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I guess we shall see in the meantime. Yeah. Hey. Luckily our presidential candidates have a plan that's well articulated that they set on stage, right? Uh. No. <laughs> <laughs> God. So, okay. The, f the first thing that I want to say about the vice presidential debate, is while I was waiting for it, I was sitting there just thinking, God, this is going to be so refreshing to see politics as usual, to see two competent politicians that can, you know, speak with complete sentences that won't go off mm -hmm. the rails and yell and scream at each other about, you know, ad hominems and stupid, irrelevant points. You know, I, I was so excited for a return to normalcy. And then I started watching the debate and I realized, oh, that's right. I hate politics as usual. <laughs> you know what you should do? Start a podcast. <laughs> I should. I should. And, and then and then criticize politics. I should, I should yeah, do that. There we go. Win-win. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I felt the same way. I was like, yes, fine. Like complete sentences, check. Like not ridiculous ad hominem, check. But like ultimately, now that they're able to actually get out the points that they're trying to make in full sentences, they're not great points. Yeah. And a lot really of them are irrelevant. Yeah. A lot of them are irrelevant. A lot of them are just talking points or stump speeches. And to be, I mean, to be frank, uh, 
a lot of them, a lot of the arguments were not arguments about their positions. Yeah. They were arguments about whether or not the other person held a position or not. So it wasn't <laughs> talking about the content of positions. It was talking about the presence of yeah. positions. And I hate that. I really yeah. hate that. You know, it's like the argument devolved several times into, uh, you know, you support the Green New Deal. No, we don't support the Green New Deal. Yes, you definitely do support the Green New Deal. Instead of like, hey, here's my plan to deal with the environment. Here's your plan to deal with the environment. Let's argue about it. Let's talk mm -hmm. about the specifics. Let's discuss why my solution is better than your solution. Yeah. I wrote at the top of my notes page when I was watching the debate, like halfway through, I just scrolled to the top and I just wrote, guys, start reading the policies on your website. <laughs> <laughs> it was like they didn't know yeah. the specifics of what the heck they were going to go up and, and do once they were elected. Even even from Harris, like there were a number of times when uh, like Pence would make a point like, oh, you're not going to you're not going to raise taxes on everybody. Well, then well, then. But you're going to undo the, you know, the Trump tax cuts. Well, how is that not going to raise taxes on the middle class, which is a that is a summation of a few times when he tried to make that point. Yeah. But like she didn't have a good answer. She didn't have an answer like, well, we're going to replace it with something else. Yeah. It was as if she wasn't sure. And she yeah. just went back to the point about like, you know, taxing the wealthy, which is a good point. But I thought it was a problem to have that kind of weak response because attacking the Trump tax cuts is good when you are making the point that we shouldn't be helping out corporations and the wealthy, which they did. But you can't really make that argument saying that no one benefited from them. Because yeah. like the point is, like people did feel those benefits. People felt the simplicity in the higher min like, uh, di like minimum deduction and yeah. stuff like that. Like those, those really did have ex like benefits in people's experience and so to just say oh they're bad is going to seem well, ingenuine to people well it is also important to note that a lot of the benefits were kind of short term because that was more about um we're withholding less of your paycheck which yeah. meant that the rebates ended up being less yeah but but also the standard deduction paychecks you know ended up being more yeah and and also they increased the standard deduction which is like good for you and me because we don't take itemized deductions yeah um but has it doesn't have, have an impact on on the wealthy like ultimately like it did throw a pittance to the poor in and then and then blew up our deficit and gave a bunch more to the rich and, and corporations which is a point but the the important point to you and me or or voters like us is that you know we're going to raise taxes on the wealthy and we're going to do something. It doesn't have to be the Trump plan, but some plan for you guys. Well, so the issue, I, I would actually slightly push back on your, on your characterization of blaming Harris for that. I would actually blame Biden for that. Yeah, no, fair because, enough. That is fair. Because the, what Pence was hung up on was the fact that Joe Biden in the debate specifically said on day one we're repealing the trump tax cuts yeah yeah and yeah, that's yeah. what he was hung up on and the thing is if you look at joe biden's website his tax plan that's not necessarily true yeah like, totally he, his it's I just mean, the corporate yeah corporate well, tax cut well but even but even that though 
Mm-hmm. Like the Trump tax <laughs> sure. cut took the the corporate tax from 35 to 21. Biden mm. would just raise it to 28, which yeah. means not a that, repeal. Yeah, that's not a repeal. So so you know, Pence was kind of doing a disingenuous red herring argument, but it yeah. was because Biden set him up to do that. And you know, that kind of put Harris in this awkward rhetorical uh, position where on one hand, Joe Biden said that they would you know, they would repeal the tax cut. And I think the reason mm-hmm. why I said that was because it sounds better rhetorically. But on yeah. the other hand, there are parts of the tax cuts that both she and Biden agree yep. with and yeah, are OK totally. with. Yeah, I think they're also in an awkward place because because of that point, like yeah. they don't want to get they don't want to say that Trump has done something that is popular and they that they agree with, yeah. which like whether that's I mean, I think maybe that's. A political strategy but i think it's a pretty weak one it's a dumb one like it's a dumb one i mean yeah. i mean okay you can emphasize the whole you know democrats have always maintained that uh when when necessary and when appropriate it is completely reasonable to cut taxes on the middle class mm-hmm. you know i i would that's something that i would even personally agree with when it's appropriate cut taxes on the middle class you know because putting more money into the hands of the middle class stimulates the economy more you know when when the rich get tax cuts when the rich get more money they just save it mm-hmm. you know in some in some cases they might invest it which might lead to some additional stimulation that's you know i'll, I'll see that point but in order to have a vibrant economy you do have to have people spending money and the people that tend to spend money in a more balanced way is the middle class mm-hmm. so in some cases, it does make sense for economic stimulation to lower taxes on the middle class. Yeah. Um, but but the point is, the Trump tax cuts, after 10 years, 80% of all benefits go to the top 1%. Mm-hmm. That is what Harris needed to be hammering needed, down on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I thought that it was awesome, yes, to see someone who could finish their point. Yeah. But I thought a number of her points were weaker than they should have been. Yeah. Things like climate or things like taxes, things like um climate, things and 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 just generally seeding the economy yeah as a winning point to Republicans. Well, I think she did a better job than some Democrats in the past with that, but like I still think they need more work to to like um make more direct punchy like convincing arguments about how their policies are good for the economy we're not we don't have to make a trade-off between climate and and the economy we don't have to make a trade-off between yeah. um, health care and the economy like th- that's where that's where bernie had so much effective success is like the economy is about you folks and yeah. these policies are good for you and i was also reminded of elizabeth warren um, mm. where during the debate, she would, when she was asked about the economy, she would always say, well, the economy's great if you're rich. Yeah, But, so you know, if you're, in middle, if you're in middle America, it's not so great. And a huge reason for that is, and I believe this is a point that I made last week on the pod, is mm. the fact that wages have remained stagnant for like the past two, three decades. Now, you know, I also mentioned last week that it's very possible that the reason why Biden didn't make that point is because that also means that wages were stagnant under him mm. and Barack Obama. Sure. But I would actually say that that is a more important indicator of the economy. 
mm-hmm. because if the economy is doing quote unquote well because we have a higher GDP, we have a lower deficit, which you know we don't. It's completely blown up under Trump. Um, or if we have a high uh, you know uh, good numbers for the stock market, that doesn't necessarily indicate how most Americans are doing financially. And as we've said repeatedly on the pod, the economy should serve the people, not the mm-hmm. other way around. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, I, the thing is, Harris made herself very easy to criticize. She did. And the thing is, she didn't have to because mm-hmm. Mike Pence was lying his ass off the entire night. Yeah, like, he was. Like but he did can, it so confidently. <laughs> yeah, he did it so confidently. Like, people point to places in which Harris had abysmal non-answers. Like, yeah. the worst one I can think about was the one on court packing, where mm-hmm. she was asked about hers and Biden's position on court packing, basically whether uh, they supported the idea of increasing the number of justices to make up for the fact that there's going to be a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court if Coney Barrett ends up on the Supreme Court. And first she gave this, you know, really stupid uh, anecdote about Abraham Lincoln, which Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure, like, based on what I've read, she mischaracterized it, Um, which, again, is the absolute wrong argument, which is what Michael and I talked about last week, because... The argument, you don't have the facts on your side. You don't have the facts on your side, and you're the hypocrite when you yeah. say that. Like, when you make yeah. the point, oh, no, 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 The reason why we're doing this is because it's an election year. Mm-hmm. That makes you the hypocrite, because that's not what you were saying when it was when it was Garland. Yeah. No, the argument you need to be making is, this is Republican hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. They set the precedent, they're violating the precedent. That's yeah. the argument. That yeah. right there is the argument, and she didn't make that argument. And then when when Pence pressed her on it more, mm-hmm. she's she she made this point about how Donald Trump has been appointing a bunch of lower court justices, and all of them are white. Yeah, I thought that was so weak. I was <laughs> yeah. so uh, so in my mind, this is how it went, and this is how it did go. She was like, she literally said, "Let's talk about packing the Cortland." Then let's talk about it. I was like, "Oh, okay." All right, you're going to talk about back in the court. Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I'm here for it. And then she just doesn't. It was like she didn't have a plan for when the time came in 10 seconds yeah. when she actually had to talk How about it. How did they not prepare her for that? I don't. How? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's yeah. obvious that I was going to be asked. It was asked in the previous debate. How were you yeah. not prepared for that? And look, if you know, it's not that I don't think that they're you know, is not a conversation to be had about lack of diversity in the nominees that um, Trump has appointed. And even even beyond that, it's not like I don't think that there's a a conversation to be had about how most of the appointments that Trump has been able to make in lower courts has been because uh, Mitch McConnell has, you know, held so many seats open during the Obama administration. That's absolutely a conversation to be had. Mm -hmm. But when you're using that as a deflection, it just comes across as so disingenuous. Yeah. It's either you, you don't understand that court packing is a technical term. Yeah. And you just think it means filling up the court yeah. with stuff. Or you're intentionally misinterpreting and being evasive. And yeah, Which is I clearly thought, what she was doing. Yeah, which is clearly what... Yeah, she's way too intelligent and aware 
to yeah. do that. It was just so weak. And, and it was, uh, to your point, yeah, just like, you don't have a better answer? Yeah. People have asked you guys literally like almost every day since RBG passed. Yeah. And look, here's here's the answer. All right? Cuz like I understand the strategy here. The strategy is you don't want to say yes and yeah. terrify people that, you know, that'll lead to a uh a new precedent that's going to create a bunch of partisan battles later. You mm -hmm. don't want to say no because that's going to piss off your progressive base. Mm -hmm. So you don't answer. So here's what you say. Here's what you say is packing the court would be a terrible decision to make. And I really hope that we don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. That's what you say. Because that puts the ball in the courts of the Republicans. It's basically you saying, look, this would be terrible because it would violate precedent. It would lead to a bunch of partisan battles. Look. I was against court packing uh, when it was first brought up in Democratic debates. I was very much with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden uh, against mm -hmm. uh, Mayor Pete when he was trying to make this point. But now it's it's kind of a situation of, look, they have decided that precedent means nothing. So Democrats need to decide that, too, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the response. And, yeah, I, and that, it, I mean, it's a strong one. And, and and again, like Mike Pence was lying his ass off the whole night. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Kamala Harris gave a lot of non-answers, gave, you know, quite a few non-answers. Mike Pence gave only non-answers. Like, yeah, only fake answers. Like. Only fake answers. Some of them were like answers to, you know, questions that were asked like two two years ago in the debate. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's it was absolutely insane. And he was he was disingenuous he was you know he diverted attention i mean like at one point harris was criticizing the covid response and mike mm -hmm. pence was just like oh i'm just so proud of the american people and you know basically implying that when she was criticizing the covid response that she was criticizing americans it's like no we're criticizing you i Are know you kidding jeez yeah. you smarmy <laughs> bastard I, I I thought that I thought that to his audience that probably landed exactly how he wanted it to. It was like it was like she said, yeah, whatever you've been doing for the past eight months like hasn't been enough. And he was like, well, I think it's insulting to the American people to say what they've been through hasn't been enough. It's like wow, yeah. really pivoted on that foot, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. we? I want to talk a little bit about their answers to like the initial COVID question. Cause yeah. I thought that they were like, they were basically the model that they followed for the entire rest of the debate. Yeah. So like, so the question was basically, um, when, when you, uh, at least to Harris was, if you guys are elected, when you're the next administration, what will you do that Trump didn't do? And Harris's tact was to, like cite a number of facts that didn't actually add up to a weak response necessarily by the Trump administration. Like, yes, 200,000 people dead is terrible. You know, 8 million people infected is horrible. But until you tie that to, until you anchor that to doing a worse job than other nations, 
like th- that argument doesn't necessarily flow through. So which like Biden did good do. facts. Yeah, which Biden did do. Yeah, exactly. But but like good facts, not nece- the point didn't necessarily land. Yeah. And she didn't answer the fundamental, most important part of the question, which is like, what are you going to do that's going to be better? And I thought that was kind of like a good outline for most of her answers, like some good information, not necessarily an answer to the question that we want to know the answer to. And then Pence's response was basically just lying his ass off. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, and the, and the last actual, the, the last part of Harris's answer is just some like a zinger on the administration, like calling calling the COVID response the biggest failure of any presidential administration in history or something like that. Yeah. Um, but on Pence's side, it was basically, oh, like, look at this one thing that may or may not have made a difference, which in this case was stopping travel from China, and um, and then taking all the credit for stuff that other people did, like, like providing P- PPE to states, which governors were doing. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was like, it, w- it was an unfortunate and really sad view into the next hour and a half. Yeah, and then and then Pence tried to bring up swine flu. Oh my God, it was God, so weak. What, in what world do they think that's a good idea? I know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, well, you messed up with the response to swine flu. It's like, yeah, like, well, what is it? Like 15,000 people died of swine flu? Which, <laughs> yeah, it was you know, like... It's terrible, of yeah. course. You know, one is too many. But, <laughs> like, a, a, a flu that infected far more people mm-hmm. that, than COVID has so far uh, only killed, like, 15,000 people. Mm-hmm. And then his whole argument was, well, if this was COVID, then it would have been really bad. And it's like, okay, and if my aunt was a man, she'd be my uncle. What, yeah. What's your point? <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah, if, if it was COVID then they probably would have spent more time listening to experts. Like, if it was COVID, they would have listened to scientists when they said, hey, this is dangerous, and it's airborne. Mm -hmm. And they would have done something about it. Like, it's such a non-point. It's such a a red herring. Mm -hmm. I mean... Yeah, I I thought the same thing. I was like, that... It really is a red herring. But but yeah, because in some world we're supposed to respond to every disease in exactly with exactly the same intensity. If you guys had had you know, if this had been COVID and you guys didn't shut the down the economy because no one was dying from this disease, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just actually crazy. Harris could have really been stronger during a lot of parts. Really, like uh, one of the things that kind of you know made my expectations go down was at the be- at the beginning of the debate before it had started uh, I was listening to some analysis I think it was like on like I, I think I watched it on like NBC or CNN or one of one of those um, mm. and uh, people were talking about how they'd been talking to people in the Harris camp and they had said that her strategy is not to spend a lot of time fact checking and I was like mm. I think that's a bad idea like that was exactly what I heard uh, when it was like when it was Joe Biden, mm-hmm. like the strategy was not to spend time uh, fact checking, and I thought it was a bad idea back then, and I ended up being right. Mm-hmm. Like when they lie, call them out, state yeah. the facts. 
Make yeah. sure people know how disingenuous and, you know, full of crap they are. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, Pence was so full of crap, he attracted flies. <laughs> okay. I can't talk about the fly. I, <laughs> I can. <laughs> I think it got stuck. That's my hypothesis. It was stuck. The waiter, uh, there's a fly in my bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, there were it a few things that like. Was out there for two like... and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like I was texting my brother, and like, like two and a half minutes later, it's still on there. I'm just like, oh my god, what's going on? <laughs> like, it, yeah, the most the most content fly in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> just somehow, flies never sit still except during a president or a vice presidential yeah. debate. <laughs> and the part that I love the most is the fact that it went on his head. Right as he was trying to explain how uh, institutional racism doesn't exist. <laughs> like. That bullshit meter. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the ultimate. It's yeah. like there's, you know, this is one of those places where, you know, that kind of, that really annoys me. Because there are certain things that through academic study, we have confirmed a long we confirmed a long time ago yeah that is still controversial in the united states like the fact that there are institutional barriers that disproportionately affect african americans and and other people of color that's just established fact like you can you can look at research studies it is scientific fact denying it is akin to denying climate change oh wait they do that too yeah oh my gosh this the moment when he denied climate change he said, quote, now with regard to climate change, the climate is changing, but the issue is, what's the cause and what do we do about it? President Trump has made it clear that we're going to continue to listen to the science. It's like... Bullshit! You are, yeah. <laughs> I love the... The climate is changing, but we don't said, know what the cause is. He said he doesn't, like... Trump specifically said, I don't think the science knows. Like, yeah. he said that. Yeah. He said that. How are you going to sit there and say that we're going to listen to the science? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like, the thing about Pence is that, and this is something that I think is really important to, to bring home. Pence is Donald Trump, but he, sp- he speaks pretty. Mm-hmm. Like, he is just as much of a liar as Donald Trump. He is just as amoral as Donald Trump. He's just good at saying it with a smile. He's just mm-hmm. good at making you like him while he lies to your face and stabs you in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's perfected little niceties that make, you know, the delivery of his horrible garbage a little bit uh, more easy to take. One one thing I wanted to ask about uh, was uh, the other more memeable moment was the few times that Kamala like specifically was like I'm speaking what did, what did you think about that I was so I had a very when I watched it I was tainted because I watched it after the debate I was tainted by all the social media reaction to it yeah um, but then in retrospect I had kind of a different perspective so I wanted to get your thoughts before I should so I think that people made too much out of it mm-hmm. like I I would say that the first time she did it I thought 
like in my mind, I was thinking, okay, so she's making it clear to Mike Pence that he's not going to act like Donald Trump did in the last debate. And I was like, okay, that's good. You know, you basically establish the clear rules and basically make it very clear, like, uh uh-uh, you're not going to misbehave like your childish president. So, you know, I like I don't think that it's something that I mean, it's not something that made me jump for joy every time she did it. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was, you know, I personally thought it was a good strategy because it was establishing the rules and establishing that she wasn't going to be talked over. Yep. Yeah, I I th- I, I agree. Um, at the time, it felt like she was going for like the points because she would say like I'm I'm speaking and then like pause for a while. Like it, it was like really awkward. She would like it would be like a second or two before she would like then continue speaking. See, I can forgive that because like I know you know l- l- like when I when I when I'm teaching mm-hmm. and someone interrupts me uh, or or I get interrupted in some way, I I always need to take a second to remember what I was saying. So I sure that's what I chalk that up to. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that makes sense. And and what I thought about in retrospect was actually like. When you are being interrupted regularly, and I know that like a lot of the cheers for this, uh, for her response, um, were from people decrying like mansplaining. Um, And when you're interrupted, like, or expect to be interrupted, which she clearly was, um, it can be a really powerful tool to make that awkward for the other person. Yeah. Like, like it's a really, it can be a really powerful tool to ask someone why their off-color joke is funny because it's awkward. It like clearly is a disincentive for that bad behavior. So like in either case, I think whether it was just because she needed to collect her thoughts or as a, as a strategy, I thought it went well. Um, It felt a little bit weird at the time because in my mind I had all of these positive responses about like, girl power and stuff like that so i was like oh is she just going for that but at the time she wouldn't have been known that any of that was going to occur necessarily so again i i just viewed it as she's establishing the ground rules you're not going to treat me like trump treated biden yeah which i thought was i thought was really strong and powerful and ultimately he didn't um he like he did interrupt her but only apparently around 10 times versus her uh versus um trump's 71 times interrupting biden yeah and and the last point that i want to make is I do want to very briefly make a point about sexism mm-hmm. because I remember watching the debate and sitting there thinking, oh my God, she's being so milk toast." Like, you know, she, <laughs> there's so many places that she could have very clearly and very forcefully challenged pence on yeah. ridiculous things he was saying and she and has I was, the skills to do it yeah and she has the skills to do it and i was thinking come on what's holding you back and then i i heard that there is there were apparently these interviews with a bunch of uh a, a bunch of undecided voters that were saying oh she came across as really abrasive and i was like mm. seriously seriously damn it okay joe biden straight up told donald trump to shut up and all she did was say, excuse me, please, I'm talking. It was like, so that's... I thought she came off as fucking motherly. Yeah, I thought, that's what I thought. I, I, I thought that was motherly, basically. So, I just... Jesus you Christ. Know, 
you can definitely make the point that uh, Kamala Harris is absolutely a total uh, chameleon when it comes to when it comes to politics. Um, she she changes her views based on what's popular. Not necessarily. She doesn't seem to have strong principles, and she does do a lot of non-answers and a lot of very standard politician-y platitudes and cliches. You can definitely make those criticisms of uh, Kamala Harris. And, and I do, and I have. Um, but I do think it is important to take a step back and realize that there are certain things that do hold her back. And there is this expectation that she needs to act a certain way or else she's going to be accused of being the angry black woman. Mm-hmm. And... And I don't want to, I don't want anybody to think that I'm not acknowledging that. And that is, that is really something that is incredibly destructive to discourse. Mm -hmm. And it does present a challenge that, a a unique challenge for her that she does have to face. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I definitely wasn't thinking about all that as I was watching it. I did see some reactions talking about like her voice and how it was too shrill or something. I was just so pissed about that. I think that's Mm -hmm. such garbage. And yeah, the fact that we hold female politicians to this ridiculous double standard where they're supposed to be somehow always the good guy, but also, um, you know, still be as effective as all their male counterparts. It's just, it's another, it's another way in which we put women at an incredible disadvantage because we both hold them to a higher and lower standard in all things. Fuck sex. And now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, because the other day I was, I was making a milkshake, and then I looked outside and I realized there were a bunch of boys in my yard. And mm. I was thinking, damn, my, my milkshakes bring all the boys to the yard. Mm. And I just got to say, it's better than yours. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, milkshakes make the world a better place. They so. do, and so do tips. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, Michael, uh, what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is to get a flu shot. It's another pretty tactical tip, um, but it's one that we wanted to make sure to bring up because it is a weird time of year. It is a weird year in general. And as we've seen so many times with COVID, good habits tend to be eroded during the unexpected. And so we want to make sure that even though there is this super pandemic out there, um, we're still doing the basic things we need to do to keep ourselves and the people around us safe. Um, And public health officials are worried that this could be a pretty bad flu season as fewer people may be getting uh, flu shots um, because they either don't want to be exposed out in the world or at pharmacies uh, or for whatever reason. But so, you know, and we've made this point a bunch of times on the pod, you know, COVID is a new cause of death. And so one of the ways you can combat the impact of COVID is to reduce the other causes of death. And so, you know, getting out there, getting a flu shot, making sure people are healthy and safe. That's another way to do that. Um, So yeah, just uh, most, you can get a lot of uh, flu shots for free. At various places, insurance also covers flu shots. Um, So you can find all that information online. 
So yeah, get a flu shot. And that's tips for good. So for our second segment, we want to talk about Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, She has been going through uh, her hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. Um, They just wrapped up after four days of hearings. Um, And she is the presumptive uh, justice to fill up uh, RBG's spot on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So... I might surprise some people in this segment <laughs> in some ways. So before I say what I'm about to say, I do just want to acknowledge one. I just do just want to say one thing. It is absolutely essential that we do everything we can to prevent her from being appointed. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much we can do. Any strategies that Democrats can do, they, they need to do, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at this point, the Trump administration nominated Neil Gorsuch, which was a stolen seat that was held open for nine months. And the whole thing was, oh, well, it's a presidential election. I mean, in nine months before the actual election itself. Um, so that was a ridiculous situation. That was a stolen seat. And then we have Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. who had a, an accusation of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And there was this investigation that was ordered uh, in which they refused to interview like dozens of corroborators to the sexual assault. There were several different people that accused him. So without an in-depth, thorough investigation, we nominated him to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And that was completely ridiculous. And now, just a few weeks, not, not months, weeks before an election, they're rushing to confirm a nominee... Which, you know, the standard time it takes for a nominee to be confirmed is like 70 uh, 70 days. Mm -hmm. So if she was confirmed before the election, it would be the shortest confirmation ever. Um, And if it pushes past the election, I think she... I don't know how many lame duck nominations there have been. Yeah. uh, But that's definitely... That definitely does not happen very often. Mm -hmm. Um, So... It is complete Republican hypocrisy to nominate her at this point. And also, they've admitted that they're they're specifically not focusing on a stimulus package so they can focus on this nomination. So Democrats need to do everything they can to prevent this from happening. And if they can't prevent it, they should pack the court. Mm -hmm. All of that being said, the more I research her, the more I think... Meh. I mean, Trump could do worse. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the more I was researching her, the more I was thinking, why wasn't she nominated instead of Kavanaugh? Yeah, Kavanaugh was a particularly weak nomination. Yeah, that was a terrible nomination. The more I research Barrett, the more I think, like, you got a much better case to make with this one. Like, as soon as that sexual, the sexual assault allegations came out with Kavanaugh, you should have had a legitimate investigation and you know if that turned up something it, the nomination should have been withdrawn and then you should have nominated barrett because like she's i mean there are some things there are some causes to be concerned i'm not going to pretend that there aren't mm-hmm. but 
a lot of the buzz things that I've been seeing a lot of liberals and progressives post about, the more I read about them, the more I'm like, that that's a little bit flimsy. Pretty weak. You know, that's that's yeah. like the more you research it, the the weaker a lot of those arguments become. I so yeah, so I I I had some similar but not quite as conclusive results from from some of my research. So so one thing I want to caution us against is like Trump adjusted interpretations of Supreme Court justices. Because, uh, yeah, like Kavanaugh was a particularly weak choice. Um, I think that we've also seen other weak choices from Republicans in the past, like Clarence Thomas. Um, Robert Bork is another example of a really ridiculous, <laughs> like, so So we, we I, I don't want us to, like, lose sight because Republicans have often nominated these really weak candidates to the Supreme Court, lose sight of like how powerful and important and um, high quality nominees should be, especially for like when they're like young and, um, you know, nominated for a life to this court. That being said, there's, I agree there's not a lot of like, hard evidence for why she would not be a good pick i think in normal part... times sorry say again in normal times to be clear yes yeah yeah in normal times yeah yeah obviously the procedural problems the hypocrisy aside specifically talking about her as as a nominee but i worry that that is partially because she's only been a justice for a relatively short amount of time yeah. So she has a pretty thin record. And so yeah. I I'd be very hesitant about even even as Trump about nominating someone who has done so little adjudicating. Yeah. You know, she spent um some years working for some some years clerking beginning in, early in her career uh where she clerked for Antonin Scalia among others um who was a mentor for her and informed her jurisprudence of originalism. Um, after that, she went and worked in corporate law and private practice, um, and she was one of the one of the lawyers that worked on the Bush v. Gore case, um, among other high profile cases. And yes, she was on on the Bush side, so the wrong side of that abomination. Um, and then went and taught law, including civil procedure, constitutional law, and statutory interpretation um, at at. Notre Dame, and then in 2017 was appointed to the federal bench in the Seventh Circuit. Um, so, you know, impressive resume for sure for someone, especially someone as young as she is, but not a lot of adjudicating. And and I worry that with a longer record, we would see um, some of her like more conservative proclivities come out. But yeah. again, to your point, like. You know, nothing that is obviously disqualifying, yeah. um, for sure, especially compared to someone like like Scalia, who was her mentor. Like, originalism, as problematic as it is, and I do want to talk about that a little bit, um, is not a disqualifying jurisprudence from becoming yeah. a Supreme Court nominee. In fact, it seems to be almost a precursor for most uh, Republican yeah. appointments these days. Yeah. So I want to talk about some red flags that were brought up mm -hmm. um and i also want to kind of give context to some of them because i feel like some of them lacked context 
Yeah. So one of the ones is her association with this uh, faith group referred to as the People of Praise, which mm-hmm. is kind of borderline a cult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, like the, the women in leadership are literally called handmaids, mm-hmm. which I mean, that sounds pretty bad. You know, yeah. um, it's this it's this uh, group of people that do very heavily emphasize uh, Catholic faith, which obviously there's nothing wrong with that part. Um, and they also emphasize like the role of a woman as subservient to yep. their husband and the husbands are the heads of the house. They're referred to as the heads. Um, and like, look, I again, if that's your personal belief, like. Again, I wouldn't necessarily call that a red flag. I mean, you, mm-hmm. I, I don't want us to have religious tests for people in office. I want to make yeah. sure that people are free to have their own personal religious beliefs, regardless of, uh, you know, whether or not they might be in one office or another. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to discriminate against her because of her religion. The yeah. problem it's just that I crazy. Have, it's just <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, you know, and I'll make fun of it, but I won't say that she shouldn't be nominated because of it. Yeah. Um, the part that concerns me is that this particular group has, at several points, advocated against the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. However, there aren't a lot of examples of Barrett herself making that argument in an official capacity as a judge or really even as a law professor. Yeah. There is one instance that came up that I think really does need context. And that was the speech that she gave uh, in 2006 at Notre Dame Law School in which um, she was talking to uh, graduates basically about uh, their life and their career. At one point, she said, quote, you will always keep in mind that your legal career is but a means to an end. And as Father Jenkins told you this morning, that end is building the kingdom of God. Now, out of you know in that context like out of context that sounds pretty bad like that's base it, it it does sound like she is basically arguing that law doesn't matter all that matters is expanding the kingdom of god uh, mm-hmm. you know right after that a little bit later down she says um keep in mind that your fundamental purpose in life is not to be an, a lawyer but to know love and serve god you truly will be a different kind of lawyer so again sounds kind of bad but Right after that, she does kind of go a little bit more in depth into that. And she, you know, she uses the idea of building the kingdom of God and serving God as interchangeable terms. And she lays out three ways in order to live out the whole like serving God. And the three ways are um, first praying about career choices before making them, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, If you're a person of faith, it makes sense. Uh, The second one is to. Um, give 10% of your income to either a church or a charitable cause or, you know, friends or people that need it. Like, okay, that's wonderful. I love that. Like, that's, you know, that's what I think most of Christianity should be, really. Um, And then the third thing that she said was to seek out friends that share your faith. Mm -hmm. So none of those are actually about establishing theocracy and abolishing the separation of church and state. So, yeah. I, and it was also in 2006. Sure. Before she was a judge. So I, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily the, the smoking gun that people think it is. She's also written in the past 
about the need to um, not let religious uh, views influence um, judicial findings. So she wrote a law review article um, talking about the death penalty in capital cases for specifically for Catholic judges, um, you know, and and Catholics as a whole reject the capital punishment. And she basically said, if you are a judge faced with a capital case and you're a Catholic, you should recuse yourself from that case so that you can you can avoid the conflict. Um, that would which, exist, which is exactly the right thing to yeah, do if you do experience reasonable. a conflict with your with your function. So that yeah. is perfectly reasonable. I think so I think it's pretty clear that of the potential choices for Trump to have made, she's like she's probably far from the worst. Yeah. I think, you know, the more research I do, the more that seems true. I also want to take a second to discuss two extremely important topics that have been the primary concern of a lot of progressives, and rightfully so, and that is abortion and the Affordable Care Act. So the biggest instance that I found of Barrett straight up coming up out against uh, uh, Roe versus Wade is the, there's this case where in, or there's this thing where in 2006, she added her name to this uh, petition or this group that opposed abortion and opposed Roe versus Wade and, um, you know, to this ad that was calling for an end to, uh, to laws that don't protect unborn children or, or whatever. Um, but again, that was, I mean, that was in 2006 and that was a while ago. That was before she was a judge. So, you know, in fact, I'll admit that in 2006, I was pro-life. I mean, I was a kid at the time, and I didn't know much about the issues, but in 2006, yeah, I was pro-life, you know, and I've changed my mind since then. Now, maybe those aren't comparable because she was an adult, but, you know, people change. And after that, the, the biggest thing that, we f that I found that indicates how she might rule specifically about Roe versus Wade is um, was about 10 years later, uh, so about 2016, when she was talking to uh, Jacksonville University, and she actually indicated that she didn't think that Roe was going to be overturned, but she did acknowledge that she could roll back protections for abortion. Mm -hmm. So basically what that means is uh, rolling back how late you can do an abortion on, um, protections on how late you can do an abortion, putting more restrictions on clinics that make it harder for people to uh, get abortions. And look, those are terrible. Those are absolutely horrible. But those aren't quite overturning Roe versus Wade. And she has seems to indicate in a lot of rulings that we don't know how she would rule if given a chance to abolish Roe versus Wade. Now, there is cause for concern because Donald Trump specifically said that he wanted to appoint a judge that would overturn Roe versus Wade, so it's possible they've had conversations that we don't know about, mm -hmm. but it's it's less blatant. There's yeah. less of a smoking gun on this one. Um, another thing with the Affordable Care Act. So the thing that people are really concerned about right now is that right now there's a Supreme Court case. It's called uh, California versus Texas that is trying to strike down all of the Affordable Care Act. And 
the arguments that they're making are so bad that even a lot of conservatives are saying, yeah, this is never going to work. So the argument is basically that, so the, the Trump tax cuts repealed the mandate. And the way they repealed the mandate was not by striking down the specific part of the law that said you have to have insurance. It was by changing the tax, um, the the uh, the tax punishment for mm-hmm. not having insurance to zero. So, you know, it's the mandate is still there in the law, but the tax is zero. So you you don't there's no uh, there's no punishment or yeah. yeah there's no consequence for. Uh, for not having insurance. So what the argument is, is that basically that because there is no tax, like zero is is not a tax, because of that, that part of the law is unconstitutional. And there might be an argument to be made there, but the argument that they're trying to make is basically that because that part of the law is unconstitutional, there cannot be severability, meaning that can't be severed from the rest of the law. Therefore, the rest of it must be unconstitutional. And in order to prove that there should be severability, there has to be pretty solid proof that when Congress voted on a specific part of the law, it was voting on that part of the law with the idea that the rest of the law would also be involved. The reason why this clearly does have severability in this case is that when Congress voted to repeal that specific part of the law in the uh, in the tax cut in the tax bill, they didn't vote on the other parts of the Affordable Care Act. So it makes no sense to use that argument to strike down the rest of the Affordable Care Act. And there was actually this mock trial, apparently that Barrett was uh, that Barrett was involved in in which she actually uh, she actually did declare that yeah the zeroed out mandate that's unconstitutional because there's no actual tax but it still has severability now she did emphasize that that doesn't necessarily mean that's how she would rule in the uh, in a real case but it does establish at least a precedent that she you know, she has indicated um, in, you know, some form of capacity that the specific case of Texas, in the, in the Texas case, does not have grounds to stand on. So that actually makes me feel a little bit better. Like, but that doesn't mean that she won't be very quick to strike down other parts of the Affordable Care Act when people with better arguments come before the Supreme Court, which is why she is still a dangerous nominee. Yeah. But we need to be honest about how dangerous she is if we're going to be honest about how we need to stop her. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think one of the ways that she is dangerous is specifically because we can't say with any level of certainty how she will like vote in or determine um you know, rule in these different cases. And that's unfortunate. Because, you know, a combination of things kind of come together that leave us guessing more than knowing what kind of judge she will be. Um, One of those things, as I already mentioned, is a relatively short career on the bench. Another is specifically through these hearings, um, she has refused to answer questions from Mm. um, 
the committee yeah. members specifically about these different political policies, referring back to something called the Ginsburg rule, which is basically where a nominee says that they won't rule on anything that could be could come before the Supreme Court while they're sitting there. So basically, most legal questions are kind of off of the table. So she did a lot of not answering those kinds of questions, which according to precedent of previous nominees is perfectly legitimate in many cases. Still annoying. <laughs> Still annoying and not legitimate in all cases. And I'll, and I'll talk specifically about one of those in a minute. Um, but the, but you know, so we have to kind of infer her potential activity as a judge from her past, which is short, her writings, which there are some of, um, and kind of have and kind of are mixed, and from her nomination by Trump, who is specifically trying to nominate someone who would overturn the ACA, overturn Roe, um, and just generally have generally have a lot of these more conservative rulings and opinions. But again, like these are all kind of guesswork. Yeah. Um, but one thing we do know about her, which I which I want to talk a little bit about, is that she is an originalist and a textualist. Now, a textualist is like what Gorsuch is. Um, and he's actually done a surprisingly less than totally crappy job so far. So that's actually not been that horrible. Um, but an originalist is what Antonin Scalia was. And I would argue that he presided over some of the worst rulings of the Supreme Court in many, many years. And did a tremendous amount of harm to um, our nation and our laws and our ability to, um, you know, legislate and, and dictate the, the Constitution as a living and growing document. But basically, an originalist means that she intends to interpret the Constitution in terms of its original intent and the text of the document itself. itself. And that's kind of a regressive uh, perspective and not one that's aligned with more common views of jurisprudence, which focus on um, previous rulings and the growth of growth of case law. Um, that's even like the, the longer tradition in the United States, which is a common law system where our laws weren't written down until much later on and were kind of developed based on ideas of justice and fairness. And so... Like it's actually kind of a, a recent invention to think of yourself as an originalist. But the problem is that it also is not cognizant of some of the more recent developments, i.e. some of the more progressive developments in our interpretation of the laws. For example, you want women to have equal rights? Well, then you have to pass the Equal Rights Amendment because otherwise they're not necessarily, they're not called out or necessarily included in the Constitution. We certainly know that they weren't considered as part of the 14th Amendment and so at, at what like so there it when you're remaining internally consistent as an originalist you don't really have the ability to say well of course women were meant to be included because they clearly weren't at the time hmm. and so it's a pretty narrow way to interpret the constitution and another example um that i want to call out is that um an originalist wouldn't have the ability to remain internally consistent and support Roe v. Wade. Um, and this is why I say that. So one of the problems is that because you can't extrapolate um, 
to you know results that aren't specifically men mentioned in the constitution um she wouldn't be able to recognize a right of privacy which was established um, in Griswold v. Connecticut, brought up in Roe, and is a fundamental part of a number of other um, rights that we recognize. Like, like Americans on both sides of the aisle believe in a right to privacy, and it simply doesn't exist in the Constitution. It was found. It, the argument that the, the court found persuasive in Griswold found that um, the right to privacy was synthesized from a number of different amendments in the Constitution. For example, the First Amendment, which is like they interpreted kind of as the right of private beliefs, and the Third Amendment, the right of a, to uh, have a private home against the demands of the use of soldiers, or the Fourth Amendment, which is interpreted as privacy of persons and possessions, or the Fifth Amendment, which is a person's ability to not self-incriminate, so have like personal privacy and autonomy. But ultimately, like an originalist cannot find a right of privacy in the Constitution. And as a result, she wouldn't be able to find that Roe v. Wade was supported by the Constitution. She wouldn't even be able to find that Griswold v. Connecticut was supported by the Constitution, which was a case that found that married couples could buy contraception. And so the challenge here is that what we know about her is that her judicial philosophy is an incredibly conservative one, one that disregards our much more common belief in the growth and the development of jurisprudence, and basically means that if she's going to stay internally consistent, which is a big if, like she has specifically said she's not going to comment on how she would rule in Roe v. Wade. She's, she's an expert in civil procedure. Um, and uh, legal philosophy. And so, like, it is very possible that she, assessing a case on its merits, would not, like, strike down these laws, but we know that her philosophy pushes her in her judicial philosophy, not even her, her religious beliefs, but her judicial philosophy pushes her towards these more conservative rulings. Um, and she specifically said that she wouldn't comment in her hearing. She specifically said she wouldn't comment on whether Griswold v. Connecticut was rightly decided, which is crazy because while, you know, she said she wouldn't comment on Roe v. Wade because it was a case that was actively being argued in various places, but Griswold v. Connecticut has been settled for 50 years. It is established law. If there's ever a super president, it is one of them, and she still wouldn't comment on it, which spooks me for sure. So, yeah. Relig originalism is a pretty weak jurisprudential position, and she is an originalist. And so while we don't have a lot of hard information, the information we do have, to me, points to a not necessarily disqualifying, but definitely a worrying place for our, for our Supreme Court. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our ass hat this week? Well, Michael, our ass hat this week is quite possibly my third least favorite senator in the United States Senate, and that is South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Oh, Lindsey Graham, he finally made the list. Come finally. on down. Has he not made the list before? I feel like he has. He has must he? have made. He must have. He must I have. can't imagine that Lindsey Graham. Oh wait. Oh wait. Four. Sorry, I forgot about Tom Cotton. 
Yes, that's important. <laughs> yeah. Okay, four, fourth least favorite. Fourth least favorite. <laughs> so what did Lindsey Graham do to make it on our list this week? Well, Lindsey Graham was speaking at this function, and he was trying to make it clear just how open and accepting he is of black people and immigrants. You know, mm. So, so he nothing, said, nothing that convince you that someone is actually ac- accepting of black people and immigrants than them trying to convince you that no, 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 I really am. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was he was speaking at this forum for for candidates, and he said, uh, "quote I care about everybody. If you're a young African American, an immigrant, you can go anywhere in this state. You just need to be conservative and not liberal." oh my god what that's that doesn't even make sense (laughs) so so as long as you're as long as you conform to my ideology yeah then i don't believe you should be discriminated against because you're black yeah yeah he he goes just before that he goes to young people out there young people of color young immigrants this is a great state but one thing i can say without any doubt you can be an African American and go to the Senate, but you have to share our values. Ugh. And like in the the context of this, he's currently running against uh, a black man mm-hmm. uh, who he's actually running toe to toe with. He's mm-hmm. actually been going on to TV, um, begging like a little puppy for uh, for donations because uh, his um, his opponent, which is uh, Jamie Harrison, has been outraising the hell out of him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I love to see. Well, it, so this is like not only a, a ridiculous and silly and like relatively racist position. It's also emblematic of, of this like uh, theme that's been running through conservative politics and, and, and Republican um, talking points, which is like being liberal is un-American. Yeah. Being liberal is not an American value. Yeah. And it's and like, not only that, but I'm, I'm here. I'm not here to serve you. Like if yeah, you're liberal, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not here to serve you. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, like, how do you, how do you think that's your job? Like, how do you think that, how do you, how is that your conception of the United States? Yeah. Look, hmm. look, progressives obviously dis- and Democrats obviously disagree with Republicans and conservatives. You know, that's, that's clear. And look, I, I won't lie. I get annoyed with people. I get really annoyed with people. I, I, you know, sometimes uh, get pissed off when I see people making stupid conservative points. Like, and sometimes I get salty, and I and I might make insults. What? But you at the end of the salty? day, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shocking. Um, at the end of the day, I truly do believe, though, that my ideology and my philosophy will make the world a better place for everybody, including conservatives. Mm-hmm. And I want them. I, I want the world to be a better place for everybody, including conservatives. Yeah. But it feels like, but Lindsey Graham is making it very clear that, you know, I don't care about, I, I don't care about you if you don't have my same ideology. I don't yeah. care. Like, it's okay if you're being discriminated against. Yeah, exa- no, exactly. If you're liberal. It's like, that is this weird transactional thing he set up. Like, I'll yeah. be against racial injustice if you're for big military and tax cuts. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, what a douche canoe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can say that on here. 
So a deep and hearty congratulations to our favorite Southern Belle for being our asshat of of the week. week. So for our last segment, we wanted to talk about uh, kind of an interesting phenomenon um, called stochastic terrorism and its connection to um, a recent plot to kidnap and try in a citizen militia tribunal uh, two governors, uh, Governor Whitmer of Michigan and Governor Northam Northam of Virginia. Yeah. So what is stochastic terrorism? So basically the idea behind it focuses on how many followers a certain figure has and how many people listen to what said person says. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if you are a public figure with a huge following and you make direct or even indirect incitements of violence, when you have a certain number of people in your audience, it becomes a statistical certainty Mm -hmm. that somebody in your audience is going to act on that. So a great example that I would give of this would be Pizzagate. So mm. Alex Jones had like I I don't know exactly how many followers he had I think it was it was definitely in the millions I believe, um, but he was spreading this conspiracy theory uh, back in 2016 that the Hillary Clinton that, that that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were running this child sex ring underneath uh, a a pizza place in Washington D.C. And, you know, he was he was saying a bunch of things about it. He was saying, we need to do something about this. And most of his audience heard that and was probably thinking, oh, that's terrible. Oh, cutting, ah. You know, mm-hmm. some of them might have even been thinking, man, someone really needs to do something about that. But most people probably did nothing about it. But one person heard what he said and walked in to that pizza place with a semi-automatic weapon and shot the place up now thankfully no one was killed but someone easily could have been Mm -hmm. so when you have a large audience someone in there is going to be a nutcase and if you say something if you make direct or indirect threats of violence it is almost certain that that will lead to somebody doing some type of act to carry that out yeah yeah Stochastic specifically means basically just something that has a random probability distribution or pattern that can be statistically analyzed. But yeah. so, so when you combine those things, you get a result where it is, it is statistically predictable that someone will act on the words that you say yeah, or the dog is- whistling that you imply. But importantly, no one can trace it back to you yeah. directly. It's, it's about what you're putting out there into the world um, that when taken seriously, someone may act on. In the limit, you know, all yeah. things that are possible occur. And so as you get to millions and millions of followers, um, it becomes more and more likely that you will tip the scales of some one individual going yeah. crazy and acting on your rhetoric, which we've seen in the growing domestic terrorism and and violence in the United States. 
This is why it was such a big deal that Tucker Carlson excused the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse, Mm -hmm. or at least that he tried to justify them. Yeah. Because what you're basically saying there is the fact that the first, like the first person that Rittenhouse killed was unarmed. The fact that you're justifying that with the whole, Oh, well they're rioters and looters anyway. So, you know, what did you expect? Mm -hmm. Other people hear that. They listen to that and they have that in their mind if they end up going to a demonstration or if they decide to join a militia, they have that in their mind. And, and the important point that Michael brought up is the fact that it can't be traced back to you. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about stochastic terrorism, to be clear, Michael and I are not necessarily saying that like you should be criminally prosecuted when you do this, but that doesn't mean that your actions and your words don't have a disastrous effect and that, you know, and we need to call that out. Yeah. We need to acknowledge that. Yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons why Trump's like, whether, whether you think it's his evil rhetoric or even his poor communication, the fact that he is bad at expressing condemnation of groups that support him is a really problematic thing. When he tells the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, even if later he comes back and says, no, no, actually, I am condemning them, which he didn't do. Even if he did, it would be an echo to the people that hear, uh, you know, the rallying cry of be ready and believe it to be their responsibility to act. So clear communication clear condemnation of bad actions like not calling people uh to in in, even inadvertently calling people to action is really important yeah um that's also why it was so dangerous when trump basically told people to go into polls and you know yes and watch people and make sure people don't vote fraudulently it's like that's voter intimidation now look you might be hearing that and you might think, oh, well, he was only talking about making sure that there isn't fraudulent votes. He wasn't talking about voter intimidation. He didn't specifically say voter intimidation. Yeah. But there are enough people that are going to hear that message that did not have any qualifiers. Mm-hmm. And they're going to take that as permission from the president to go into polls and try to intimidate people. Yeah. 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 But I mean, back in 2016, even before he was president in a Rolling Stone article, he was talking about what his, quote, Second Amendment people might do if Hillary Clinton Clinton won the election. That like the Second Amendment. okay, that's the one about guns. Do something if your political adversary wins an election. That sounds a lot like violent revolution. Yeah. He, He clarified later that he meant they vote. But that poor like whether it's a miscommunication or intentional um attempt to to incite violence like it won't be traced back to him directly but you know words matter especially to an audience of millions of people that respect you yeah so the big point to be made about stochastic terrorism is that ultimately we can have discussions about what the intention 
of the person was, what the intention of the statement. You know, we can argue whether or not Trump is actually wanting people to act violently. We can argue about whether Tucker Carlson is okay with someone picking up a gun and shooting protesters. We can have arguments about that. That's fine. But we cannot disregard the fact that words have consequences. Miscommunication has consequences. Mm Mm-hmm. And if it is a miscommunication, which, again, that is the best-case scenario. The best-case scenario is that when people listen to people like the president, people like Tucker Carlson, people like Alex Jones, Mm -hmm. that it is a miscommunication, the best-case scenario, but it still makes them act on it. It still makes them act on terrible things. I mean, look, these aren't hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the there was the guy that sent that tried to send bombs to a bunch of prominent Democrats and to 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 CNN. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there was the mass shooter in Walmart with a manifesto about like the invasion of the immigrants and having to take care of them. Exactly. Yeah, this is not a hypothetical. So, and what most, we're trying to most recently, a freaking militia tried to kidnap the leader of a state and plotted. To kidnap another one, like, and this the and Whitmer is specifically a governor who Trump has called out more than once, saying that she wants to be a dictator. What does a far right group think when they think someone wants to be a dictator? They think they're being treasonous. They want to take the law into their own hands. Like, it's not hard to draw that connection, and you know. Clearly, like, we're not trying to claim that Trump is out there trying to form an ad hoc militia. He'll wait till after the election probably to do that. Um, (laughs) But, like, the idea that he is not contributing to events like this is insane. And it's it's through this mechanism that he's doing that. So we're not arguing that people need to have their free speech violated. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that... Uh, Trump should be held legally accountable for the uh, the threats of kidnapping on Whitmer and Northam. In fact, we're not even arguing that he should be necessarily be held legally accountable for you know if his supporters go into voting booths and do voter intimidation. We're not we're not even necessarily saying that. But what we are saying is that there is a certain level of irresponsibility that comes when a person who has the ear of everybody in the nation, and make no mistake, when the president says something, that's national news. Yeah. All right? Everybody in the nation has access to what the president says. And most people in the nation follow what the president says. Mm-hmm. It when matters. When you have that following, when you have that many people that follow you, you have to be careful with what you say. You have to be a good communicator. Mm-hmm. And not acting responsibly with that power that you have is not just incompetence, it is immorality. And now to finish up our episode on a high note, we'll do our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? So. My highlight this week is probably something that most people are going to think, seriously, that was your highlight? (laughs) Um, So I was having this issue with uh, a video game 
Uh, I, I play a lot of Skyrim. It's my favorite video game. And I was having this weird glitch where it would crash to desktop when I tried to save after a certain time of day. So it, was, it basically made it so I couldn't do any more progress in the in in my game oh my gosh and you know again that that is how i wind down after a long day and i've been having a lot of long days recently and that was that's been really troubling me for the last few nights because i've been working for hours trying to figure out how to fix that and today i finally figured out (laughs) a workaround and the, f- the greatest thing is I figured it out. Like I, I'd been on so many forums and I'd tried so many solutions, none of which that worked. This was a solution that I figured out myself. Nice. And then I went on a forum and, and I shared it because I, because I was like, oh, someone, someone else might be. Having you contributed problem. to a game. I contributed. <laughs> I contributed to a game forum. That's the first time I've ever done that. That's badass. So anyway, I just felt this like, again, it's a small thing. But sometimes you just got to take the little things in life, you know, the little things that that make life awesome. You know, it was a small thing, but it made me feel really good, made me feel really accomplished. And um, yeah, I'll be playing Skyrim tonight. That is really probably awesome. while I edit this. That is awesome. I mean, what and, about and, yours, Michael? And, and don't feel bad about a about a, a relatively lame highlight. I'm pretty sure my highlight one week was bookcases. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, what's yours, Michael? My highlight is I'm just so happy that this week is almost over, and it's a short <laughs> week anyway. Yeah. Like, it's it's only been four days for me because I work at a bank, and banks are closed on Indigenous People's Day. Hmm. Um, but man, it has kicked my butt, and I'm ready for the weekend. <laughs> so that's my highlight. Yeah. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again next week.